I appreciate uh, the measures that our president and our local governor uh, is, is making to, to help stop the spread of this virus. And, and we take those things very seriously. We're not in any way having a cavalier attitude or being dismissive. But, but at the same time, we also answer to a higher authority and have a, a, a faith that is not of this world. You know, Our faith is from the citizenship that we have in heaven with our heavenly father. And uh, even this morning as I was just coming out, of, coming out of sleep, I felt the Holy Spirit reminding me of uh, Mark chapter 16, where it says that they that believe shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Well, we're going to say if we touch any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And we're just going to believe and be wise through this whole process. But one thing we're not going to give ourselves to is a spirit of fear, spirit of hysteria. We're not going to give into that. But what I am aware of is this. I think a couple points, and then I'll, I'll, I'll speak into this. Uh, I'll speak the word here in a moment. I'm going to speak into this just for a moment. A couple points. One, I think the Lord has given us the opportunity to have a little wake-up call. You know, I mean, here we are in, in uh, you know, 2020, and literally overnight, the nations of the world shut down. Athletics shut down. Air travel is basically shut down. So much commerce and business is shut down. And the Lord is showing us our fragility. How in a moment, something as small as a virus, something as microscopic as that, can shut down the entire globe. And so when you see the details from the scripture about how the events of the end of the age are going to unfold, this should cause our antennas to go straight up in the air. This should wake us up and we see like, oh, I could see how the context of the earth could shift literally overnight. So one, I think the Lord's allowing us to have a wake-up call. Secondly, I think the Lord is allowing this to happen so that the gospel can go forth in power. I mean, this is probably one of the most opportune moments that any of us have seen in our lifetimes for the gospel. I remember right after 9-11 how people were open to conversations about the Lord. And this, I believe, is another one of those moments. Now, you got to let them get over that initial hump where they don't want to talk to anybody. But I think in just a half second when this hysteria dies down, we're going to have an opportunity for the gospel like we've not seen. And so I want to encourage you even now, think about your neighbors. Think about who you interface with outside of church, your coworkers, family members, and begin praying for them right now and asking the Lord for an, uh, an open door for the gospel. Uh, my daughter, she has... Uh, she goes out witnessing every week, and we've already talked about it. We're planning on going into our neighborhood door to door and just knocking doors and saying, hey, here we are. We're Christians. We live right over there. Can we pray for you? Anything you need prayer for? By the way, do you know Jesus? And I just feel like the Lord's going to give us an opportunity for the gospel. How many believe that, that we're in this moment? I believe so. And so uh, those are a couple things that are on the top of my mind. At the same time, we don't need to be arrogant or cavalier or shaking our fists. None of that. We will be just in faith, not operating in fear, listening to our uh, elected officials, 
and the health professionals and moving forward. Amen and amen. All right. Well, uh, tonight I want to make mention, we were going to have a normal service, but we're just going to call a prayer meeting. It's what we do. It's what we're built for. And so the president called today a national day of prayer. So if you'd like to come out at five o'clock, we will be having a, a time of worship and intercession, asking God to, to stem the tide of the COVID-19 virus, to break in with the gospel, to stem the tide of fear. And we'll be praying for our government officials as well. Amen. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we will get into the message this morning. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come together. We can gather to worship you, to hear the word, to be challenged and changed. And in this moment, when the context of the earth is shifting and changing dramatically, I'm thanking you, God, right now that there is an attentiveness that you're wanting to release by your spirit. So draw us into revelation by the Holy Spirit. Draw us in to what the spirit of the Lord is saying to the church right now. And I'm asking even this morning, enlighten the eyes of our understanding as we speak the word. Draw us in to a heavenly perspective. Let us see the days ahead and let us see the ultimate day that we have when we stand before you. We give you thanks. I ask you to stand with me. Hold my hand. Let me speak as an oracle this morning. In the name of Jesus, everyone said amen. All right, well, we're on part three. I'm going to continue with our normal sermon series. Uh, I know probably a lot of people this morning are preaching on COVID-19. I'm tired of talking about it. Let's talk about Jesus. Amen. So we're going to continue with part three of our sermon series we've been on, Understanding the Judgment Seat of Christ. I want to give a little recap from last week. Last week, we dialed in on two really key, key things that are going to be chief components uh, to what our experience will be like on that day when we stand before the Lord. And, And those two components are the motives of our heart and the faithfulness that we employ in God's Uh, opportunities he gives us in this age, the motives of our heart and our faithfulness. And what we found is this, that Jesus in Matthew 6, he really gives a strong warning against doing works to be seen by men. He explains that you could do righteous works in your gifting, in your calling, you could do righteous works, but if you do them with the ambition of being seen and known by men, He says, you have no reward. He says, do it under your father who sees in secret and the father who is in secret will reward you openly. And we talked about that open reward is at the judgment seat of Christ when he gives so many gifts and crowns and blessings to those that have lived with a motive to please the Lord in this age. Well, then the second thing we talked about was faithfulness, and we used the the parable of the talents, and we talked about how talents are opportunities that God gives us according to our ability, and that when we employ the opportunities according to the gifts that God's given us, and we do it in faithfulness, when we're faithful with very few things, the Lord promises to make us uh, leaders or masters over many things. And so this idea of being faithful in the small few areas that God's offering you to have stewardship over in this age is a critical idea that we're faithful with the little and then God will reward us openly. And what we found when we were talking about that is this, that God, he doesn't reward us on the basis of our gifts. 
He rewards us on the basis of our faithfulness. Amen. And then we talked a little bit about hypocrisy, how Jesus is the only one that ever used that word in the, in the Bible. And if I were you, I, would, I, feel, I feel cautioned and, and corrected by that, that I wouldn't use that word liberally or freely because Jesus is the only one that can say this one's a hypocrite or not. But he described that hypocrisy is doing those works for men to be seen by men or doing works and on the inside, your heart is full of dead men's bones. And, and we dealt with that. And then we ended with this, that maturity in love is the key to eternal rewards. And so that's what we, we spoke on last week. If you weren't here, I just gave you the whole message in four minutes. And some of you are thinking, why couldn't you have given us the whole message last week in four minutes? Well, because that's what preachers do. We like to emote and we like to be verbose. All right, here we go. So this week, I want to end this series with this. I want to talk about the mentality that we are supposed to have as believers, I want to talk about the Lord's mentality that he has towards us, and this is in context of eternal rewards. What's our mentality supposed to be? What's the Lord's mentality? And then I, I want to talk about at the end how we can, we can find ourselves ensured that we're going to be found receiving the rewards God wants to give us. Does that sound okay to you? You're here. You're here. Let me, let me hear you. Okay, good. All right. So how we can be presented blameless at the judgment seat. All right, let's do this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. Jesus, he gives this example he actually is using an example. This isn't even a parable. He draws this example out, and one of the chief reasons is he's trying to explain to us the mentality that we are to have regarding how we serve the Lord. And this example that he gives us, it strikes at the heart of an entitlement mentality. He comes right at an entitlement mentality. And I realized growing up in America with so many options, so many opportunities, so many things that are just handed to me, over the years I've realized that one of the chief things I've had to root out of my heart is an entitlement mentality, where I expect things to be done for me or given to me without really, for any reason, just, just because. I'm here, I deserve Am I making any sense? All right, give me a grunt, a groan, something. And, and I realized that when we have an entitlement mentality, it's one of the chief boundaries that stands in the way of us serving the Lord with a heart of gratitude. An entitlement mentality keeps us out of gratefulness, and it gets us into self-pity. If we don't receive what we think we're supposed to get, we get into self-pity. And so Jesus, he, man, he goes right out the root of this thing. And I want you to look at this with me in Luke chapter 17, verse 7. It says, uh, and which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? So again, this is not a parable. He's actually throwing an example at them. He says, which one of you guys? 
If you got a servant, somebody that's working for you, that after they've done the work in the field, you tell them to stop their duties and come and eat first. And, and, and he says, no, no, no. But rather, verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? He says, I think not. Verse 10, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say this, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do, or we have only done what the master has commanded. This is so interesting to me. So this example he's given is a, is a, would be a modern-day example for the time. And he's saying, many of you, you have these servants that work uh, around your, your farms and your agriculture, and, and, and then they also serve in your home, and, and their job is to work in the field, then come in and, and prepare things in the home, and that's what they're supposed to do. He goes, now, how many of you, after your servant has worked in the field, do you just tell them, okay, just take a break where I'm going to feed you, take care, and you don't have to do the rest of your work? He goes, none of you do that. None of you would think to do that. What you would think to do is this, that your servant, he's got a job to do. You tell him to do the job. He works in the field, and then at night, he's supposed to come in and make things ready for the family to eat. You tell your servant to do his job. He's supposed to do his job. None of you are thinking, give him a break just because he's done what he's been told to do. And then afterwards, when he's actually done the job he's supposed to do, he goes, none of you sit there and say, thank you so much for doing what I'm paying you to do. Now, that's an interesting point that Jesus is drawing out, and now, when Jesus teaches, there's different times when he uses an example or a parable, and he uses it as a contrast of his own nature, okay? Luke 18, that's a perfect example when he uses the contrast. The contrast in Luke 18 is an unjust judge, and he says, you should cry out to the unjust judge until he hears, but the point of the, the, the broader thought of the parable is that God is not unjust. God is not like the unjust judge. Well, exactly the same here in this passage, Jesus, as a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, isn't like human masters. Human masters expect the job to be done. You're getting paid. Do the job. You don't even have to get thanked. It's what you do. He goes, will he thank him? He goes, I think not. This is how human masters act. Now, this is a real interesting parable or teaching, I should say, for our context in the earth today. Because if you're in leadership, if you ever read any business books on how to lead this current generation, you find that you have to tell them thank you all the time, or they will quit you. How many know what I'm talking about? God bless you if you're in that current generation. I won't say the name of it. I'm not trying to call anybody out. But that you actually now, leaders, have to employ a tactic with a, with a certain segment of, the, of this generation that's, that's alive right now, that you always have to thank them, you always have to pat them on the back, you always have to reward them. Beloved, I want to tell you, it's not been like that historically for literally centuries. I know this might come as a shock, but if you got contracted to do a job, what you got for doing that job was paid. 
That's it. It wasn't perks, thanks, attaboys, free coffee, lattes on tap, nap time at work. That's real. It wasn't any of that. It was, here's your paycheck. And most often it would be, here's your paycheck. There's a few things you can do better. Hello. And Jesus is just drawing that point out. And I know that sounds so foreign to our current culture and our current context. And I think it's different with volunteer environments. I think we should be lavish in our appreciation of volunteers. And I think it's, it's great to, to, to reward those who work well in work environments. I don't think those things are outlawed or anything like that. He's just drawing this point that when a worker does what a worker is supposed to do, it is just what the worker is supposed to do. And that's it. And he says, so you, when you have done all the things which you are commanded, say this. This is the idea that in our lives to the Lord, we tell the Lord, Lord, at the end, we stand before him, we say, God, I've only done what you've told me to do. I am the servant. You are the master. You are the father. I am the child. I've only been obedient to what you've said to do. I'm, I'm an unprofitable. That word is really undeserving. I don't deserve anything because of what you've already given to me. I'm an undeserving servant. That's all I am. I've only done what was my duty to do. Here's what I want to say to you. I know this is probably not that popular. You're like, did I really come to church for this today? Yes, you did. I want to say this to you. Anything that we receive from the Lord that's better than hell is an amazing, shocking, mind-blowing blessing. Anything. Anything that's better than hell. Why would I say that? Because all of us deserve hell. We've all signed up to go to hell forever. I know that doesn't sound popular, but it's true. By our rebellion and the sin in our heart, we have said no to righteousness and, and yes to wickedness, and we've lived and gone our own way. And by definition, a God who is infinitely good who's infinitely holy, cannot dwell with ones who have sin at any level. And that's why the scripture says, if you are guilty of even one sin, you've broken all of them. Because there's no difference from perfection to imperfection. Even one imperfection is still in this category of imperfection. And he who is perfect who dwells in unapproachable light, who is holy at the highest level, he can't, by definition, he can't have imperfection in his presence. And so the concept, hear me, of the cross is so mind-blowing that God would now reach to humans, spend himself, pour himself out, be crucified, be bludgeoned, be bloodied, pour himself out for us in order that we could, we who are imperfect, could dwell with him in perfection. That is a shock. 
If we got nothing more than that, I'm grateful forever. I'm grateful forever. And so then he brings about this mentality that strikes right at the, I mean, right at the heart of entitlement. And beloved, I find this in my own soul so often. I'll be asking the Lord about something, and I'm just, you know, I'm praying for it, but I'm, com- I'm complaining praying, compraying. God, you know, this is not what you, brought. you said, and I just believed in God, and where is it, and what time is it, how long has it been, and God, I don't like it this way. I don't like it like this. And so often I just feel, I just feel and hear his kind heart towards me. He goes, you, you just don't know what's best for you right now. You, you want to do things that are going to spend you in a way that is not going to cause you to, to grow towards righteousness. You want to live in a way that's going to, going to you know, fatten your flesh and and cause a greater ease on your soul. And, and what you don't realize is if all you do is live in a, a lifestyle of ease, comfort, and, and every time you ask, you get everything you want, you're going to imagine that you deserve everything. And he is a wise father. He is generous. He wants to bless us. He wants to give to us. But he does not want to raise any spoiled brat children. Hallelujah. And he says, one of the reasons why you don't receive when you pray is because you ask amiss, wanting to spend it on your own lusts. And he is all the time stewarding us, governing us, shepherding us, and leading us. I remember one time the Lord spoke to my heart. He said to me, he goes, I will give you anything that will evoke a pure response of love in your heart towards me. I went, what? You'll give me anything? He goes, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I went, what? You'll give me anything that will evoke a pure response of love from my heart to you? Praise God. A million dollars in the bank account, please. And he said, yeah, that will evoke a pure response of love in your heart towards me. And I realize this, that he answers according to his will, and he answers to keep me out of my own lusts. Does that make sense? And man, that was a real help for me, because I can't pray according to my will. I have to pray according to his will. And that's what the scripture teaches us. When we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that we have the thing for which we've asked. And so it's got to be according to his will, which really makes prayer pretty simple. Prayer is basically like prayer for dummies. It's like you read the Bible to God and say, God, would you do this? We know the word of God is the will of God. We ask him to do his will in the earth. He goes, of course. And that's how we know we get our prayers answered, and that's how we know we're praying according to his will. But this passage, I tell you, it is one of those that plumb lines me. It pulls me right out of that entitlement mentality. I know I don't deserve anything. I don't, I I haven't earned anything. When people say to me, well, I think I've earned it, I just smile 
And, and I don't always say, well, actually, you've earned hell, but uh, <laughs> it's always in my mind because I haven't earned anything from God either, and neither of you. We don't earn anything. We say yes to the one who said yes to us. We don't earn anything from him. And, and that's got to be so clear when it comes to this idea of eternal rewards, that we're serving the Lord motivated by his goodness, empowered by his grace, with his promise of rewards in front of us, and at the same time, we're serving him out of a heart that's fully in love and fully grateful because we love him, we're serving him out of that place of just pouring ourselves out for him. And, and, and that's it, knowing that he's promised rewards. We go, you are amazing. He goes, but here's the attitude I want you to have. Have this attitude that when you've done the will of God, all, all that's in your mind is, I am an unprofitable, I'm an unworthy servant just having done what the master has asked. Now, he's speaking to us about what our attitude should be, but... He's contrasting human leaders with who he is as a leader. Because all through the scripture, that is not his attitude as, as it pertains to rewarding his saints. His attitude in regard to rewarding the saints is absolutely generous. It's, it's shockingly generous. And it's, it's wild when you read through the New Testament. I want to really encourage some of you just to go on a journey reading through the New Testament and just making note of every time you see the motivation of eternal rewards. I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of verses. Jesus' primary motivator was calling people to, to live with this in mind, that you're going to be rewarded and so when I think about this, this is where I want to now move on to. Our attitude is to, to say, okay, we're unprofitable. We're unworthy servants. But Jesus' attitude is the most lavish, generous, kind, giving attitude that you can possibly imagine. When it comes to eternal rewards, the Lord is, I mean, he is excessive in the way that he wants to reward the saints. And so... I want to encourage you to, to grab the notes from online because I go through in the notes and I detail scripture that shows five different areas of reward that the Lord is promising to saints in the age to come. Five different areas. This is not just some small issue. I, I talked about last week or the week before how we have this mentality that when we show up there that all of a sudden you just get the obligatory white robe and you just move on. And that is just not what's going to happen when we stand before the Lord. Every word, every deed, everything is going to be reviewed. I mean, the faithfulness of our lives is going to be reviewed. You know, all the inner motives are all going to be reviewed. All the secret things he said, they are going to be reviewed. And then he is going to reward us according to our actions, according to our words. He's going to reward us. That's for the believer. 
The unbeliever, unfortunately, doesn't stand before the Lord uh, getting reviewed for rewards. The unbeliever will only stand at the great white throne judgment, and there will be one question there. Did you receive my son's blood sacrifice for your sin? And at the great white throne, those that stand there without having received Jesus, his, his sacrifice, his blood applied to their lives, that have not, they've not been changed, they've not been born again, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. I want to be very, very bold and clear about that point. People are trying to, they're trying to right now theologize hell out of the whole doctrine of Christianity. I want to tell you that's a false teaching, that, that the idea of hell is very real it is absolutely clear through the scripture. It is eternal separation from God. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm saying you haven't submitted your life to his lordship, then you, you do not have an inheritance in heaven. You need to give your life to Jesus because the scripture is so clear. Those who have not submitted themselves to Jesus will spend eternity in torment. That is just real. That's not me being mean. That's me being as nice as I know how to be. If your house is on fire and I watch it burn, I go, wow, it's really on fire. I hope you don't get hurt. Then I am not kind. But if your house is on fire and I go running into your house and I grab you, I go, your house is on fire. Come with me. That's, now I'm showing you love. And so I'm going to tell you, if you don't know Jesus, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, if you've never submitted yourself to his lordship, you haven't accepted the, the payment he made on the cross, you need to give your life to Jesus because there is eternal punishment for those that reject his sacrifice. Amen. So here's his generosity, though. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants all to receive reward. This is the way Jesus thinks. He didn't make hell for men. He made hell for the devil and his angels, and humans follow suit with Satan to hell forever. It's a horrifying thought. God's plan is to reward people. He wants to bless people. He wants people to live with him forever. And there's ages to come. We don't just go to some cloud floating around. I like to say this. We don't just turn into fat babies wearing togas, playing harps somewhere. There is real continuity between this age and the next. And there's five different types of rewards at least that the scripture identifies that are going to be given to the saints. And so I'll just walk through them uh, briefly. I'm not really concerned about us beating the Baptists to the buffet today because I don't think there's going to be anybody at the buffet. But I will try to get you out in a timely manner. Five types of rewards that shows Jesus' generosity. First, crowns crowns. There's at least four kinds of crowns that are identified in the New Testament. They're all different. They all come for different righteous acts. And I just want you just for a half a second just to think about what that will be like when you stand before the one who is perfect and he puts a crown on your head. That is going to be the most shocking, glorious, humiliating explosive moment. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who is crowned with many crowns, and he looks at you, and he puts one upon your head. 
commemorating forever the righteous acts that you showed him in this age. There's crowns for discipleship, and and then there's crowns for for martyrdom. What's interesting is this. I want to just draw this point out, and I'll move on. In James 1, 12, and in, in Revelation 2, verse 10, it says this, that we will receive the crown of life. Now, what's so, so interesting is this. In Revelation 2, verse 10, those that receive the crown of life are martyrs who laid their life down for Jesus. Well, throughout the ages, not every single Christian has even had a chance to be martyred because of different socio-cultural realities in the, in the earth throughout the ages. But in James chapter 1, verse 12, it actually says this, that those that resist sin will receive the crown of life. Hear me right now. Those that say no to sin, that push against unrighteousness, that live their life in the grace of God, resisting unrighteousness, resisting temptation and sin, and leaning into righteousness, that one will receive the same crown that the martyrs receive. Oh, beloved, that is shocking to me. But what the Lord is actually trying to identify in that is saying this, when you've denied yourself, you've denied your own lusts, and you've denied the temptations of the enemy, you've died, you've taken up your cross. And that person receives that same reward as the, as the martyrs do at the end of the age. It's, it's fantastic. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says this, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They're trained, they're disciplined, that's the idea. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You right now, you're living your life. You're running a race with God for an imperishable crown. Hear me. He's going to give crowns to those that that lean into him, that go after him, that pursue him. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is real. And when we get there, we're going to be shocked at how much more real that is than even this age has been. And people forfeit their eternity on a a life that the Bible describes that is a vapor that appears for a moment and then fades away. I got to hustle. Second thing he's going to give us, he gives us crowns. He's going to give us authority. Revelation 5.10 says this, he's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth with him. There are varying degrees of authority that the saints will receive in the age to come. Some will rule cities, other will rule nations. How you live in this age impacts your standing and your role in the age to come. The scripture is clear. The Bible says the saints will judge angels. Just chew on that for a little time in your quiet time this week. What does that even mean? He looked at the the 12 disciples. He said, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, and you're going to judge the nation of Israel. There are promises to the saints in this age that will only be revealed in the next age. And and, and part of those promises have to do with authority and how we lead and, and, and reign with Christ in the age to come. Thirdly, he will give an affirmation. The Lord himself is going to commend and affirm each person for their works in this age. And I just want you to just take one second and think about Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, well done. 
well done, well done. And I realized this, that the only way I can get a well done that day is if I live for the well done today. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm thinking about today. How am I going to live today? How am I going to posture my heart today? How am I going to love today? How am I going to serve today? How am I going to give today? I want to live in the grace of God for his well done today. And I assume if I live my life that way, that on that day, I'm going to hear it for the very first time with my real ears. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says this. When the Lord comes, he will reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then he says, then each one's praise, their, the affirmation that they receive will come from God. All right, fourthly, garments, garments. You're going to get a garment. It's not just this obligatory white frock. You're going to get a garment that's going to reflect, reflect your works in this age and and what we find when you actually studied it out uh, in the scriptures, there's, there's three or four verses that identify these garments, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it actually says that in the resurrection, just like stars differ from one another in glory, so it is in the resurrection among the saints. And so one, their garment will be glowing with the glory of God in a, in a you know, majestic way. Another one, it'll be more dim. Another one, it'll be blinding. And that will be all a reflection of the works done in this life, mostly about the intentions of the heart, mostly about faithfulness. All right, lastly is treasures. So we have crowns, authority, affirmation, garments, and treasures. Treasures. There are eternal treasures. Matthew 6, so clear, he says it this way, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. That is not figurative. That's real. That's legitimate, real treasures where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. I have in the notes about Two, maybe a dozen scriptures, maybe a little more than that, a dozen scriptures that identify the treasures that you're going to receive. He talks about, through the letters of the book of Revelation to the churches, the letters of the churches, he talks about, I'm going to give this one a white stone to the one that overcomes. And I used to look at that and go, why do I want a white rock? What would I want that for? And then I realized what I realize is this, that when a woman gets an engagement ring, she gets a, a rock. She gets a stone, and, and that's a beautiful glowing diamond, and that stone could be considered a, a white stone. And I don't know what a white stone really is, but I know I'm going to like it. I know it's going to be amazing. I'm probably going to put mine on my hat, probably add it to if I get a crown right to the crown. I mean, he's got, he's got so many treasures. I encourage you, get the notes. Read through these verses. Let them touch your heart in a real way. Because I'm telling you, what people live for in this age, it's going away. You can't take it with you. I don't care your mansions. I don't care your toys, your trinkets. I don't care your outfit. I don't care the designer brand name. None of that. You cannot take that with you. Your watches. <laughs> You can't take that with you. Yeah, whatever the status symbols are, our culture is so interesting now. 
You know, a watch is a status symbol. Shoes are a status symbol. Clearly mine are saying something about me right now. But I, I, I mean, sneakers, $800,000. It's a status. There's a whole subculture of that. They are all going to burn. It's going away. And I'm telling you, don't, what Jesus said, don't live for treasures on this earth. They're all corruptible. Live for eternal treasures. And there are so many that he promises the redeemed. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. I want to I be careful on our time. Two last points I want to make. Our attitude, I'm just going to summarize for a second. Our attitude should be, I am an unworthy servant. I've only done what you said. His attitude is, I am going to give you everything. And that is the most beautiful transaction. When I think about that, I go, you are fantastic. This is the thing that always gets, gets my attention. Ephesians 1, he says, uh, it'll all be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Everything will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. What does that mean? That his grace enables everything to come to pass in this age. It's only through the divine enablement of the grace of God that we're able to do anything righteous. It's it's a shocking thought because here's why. We can't do anything of ourselves. His grace enables us, but then when we get there and we stand before him, he rewards us according to our works. And I look at him and I go, but... I couldn't have done any works without your grace. He goes, I know, have a crown. How is this, this this doesn't seem right. I mean, I can't do anything unless your grace enables me. I mean, everything's the praise of the glory of your grace. He goes, I know, but have a treasure. And this radical generosity in the heart of our good God, who doesn't, he's not there desiring that all of our works will be burned to nothing. He's there desiring to to reward us in such a rich way. Beloved, live with that in the front of your mind. All right, let me give you two more points. What is, I want to answer this, what is the most critical context for eternal rewards? And I want you just to hear me these next two minutes. What's the most critical context for eternal rewards? Most people think the most important context of their life for eternal rewards is their vocation, their ministry calling, something out there among the people. And I will tell you, I do not believe that. I believe that is is considered when it comes to eternal rewards, but I don't believe it's the first thing. What I realize is this. God has seen to it that every person grows up in the context of a of a, a small group of people. Uh, it's called, the Greek word is oikos. We would call it family, family and friends. That, that close, most intimate group that you live around, that you spend the majority of your life around. It's your family. It's your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your children. That family group. And what I realize is this, and in America, I know that we're more like connected to our nuclear family, but what I realize is this, that if the majority of my time is spent around this very small group of people, then the majority of the weight of whether I receive eternal rewards or not is going to be based on how I lived with my family. Hear me. It's not how anybody on the internet thought I was. It's not how anybody in the broader group thought I was. 
It's how my spouse thinks I am, how I've ministered to her, how I've ministered to my children. Family is the first context in which God weighs our actions, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. It's the number one context by which he weighs us and and we're able to actually gain eternal rewards. Literally, listen, whether I decide to wash the dishes or sit back on my hands and hoping somebody else does it, maybe the difference between how he weighs my faithfulness and my servanthood. Now, I know that sounds completely crazy because you're thinking, well, no, I'm called to this and that. And what we've done is we've pumped up our callings and we've diminished the, the actual context God has placed us in for the majority of our lives. It's how we interact with one another. And so in a certain way, my first calling is to the Lord, of course, but my second calling is to my family. Hear me. How I interact with my wife, how I interact with my children, that is the the primary context. And that's where we have the greatest opportunity. All the married people, you know I'm going to tell you the truth right now. We have the greatest opportunity to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. My wife is an onboard opportunity for me to go to the cross daily. She happens to be the person I like the most, so it makes it a little easier but it's just true, and I'm the same for her. And beloved, I'm telling you, it's the number one context. All right, last thought. Jude one twenty four, and this is what I wanna nail home. I had people coming to me last week. They said, oh man, that's such an intense message. I mean, I just, I don't even know what to do. And just like, you could sense a little sense of fear, like, oh, I'm gonna lose rewards, oh no. I had one person, they go, I think I need counseling after that message. I went, oh, that's not my goal. But something I was staring at this week that was so meaningful to me. So often, we are more aware of our insufficiencies than we are of God's abilities. We're more aware of our own weaknesses than we are of his strength. And he's actually given us and granted us this crazy promise that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. And I want you to look at this passage in Jude, chapter 1, verse 24, and this is, there is an, there is an endowment of grace that's available to us to lean into and to access in humility that will enable us to be qualified for dramatic eternal rewards. Look at this, Jude, chapter 1, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, look at this, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is so clear. There's about a half dozen or a dozen scriptures in the New Testament that speak of this. He says, Uh, He who began a good work in you is able to complete it. And, And there's so many that talk about us being blameless before him. Ephesians 1, he said he did the cross. He chose us uh, to be children, to be adopted, that he would present us blameless before him in love. 
Here's my point. God didn't save you so he could just spank the tar out of you at the judgment seat. God saved you, delivered you, empowered you, called you, gifted you, and graced you so that he could then present you before him without any blame, without any shame, faultless in the presence of his glory at the judgment. And he says, with exceeding joy. That exceeding joy, that enter into the joy of your Lord, that whole idea is that when we see him, we'll be filled with joy. And when he rewards us, we are going to have our minds blown, beloved. We are going to be shocked. Some, it will be a day of real pain as everything burns to the ground in front of them. Some, it will be a day of exceeding joy. And that's what I want to try to get you to, to, to tap into is that the Lord's grace is available to you right now, today, tomorrow, and every day of your life. His grace is available to you so that he can present you faultless without stumbling before his presence. That's what he wants to do. We were saved by grace and we live by grace. And that's the very grace that can enable us to have a day of exceeding joy before, when we stand before him. Come on, beloved. I'm so excited about this idea because I'll just be honest, just last thought, I'll be honest. I've had fear in my own soul that maybe I'll mess it up. Maybe I'll jack it up. Lots of challenges being a minister, lots of opportunities to step in the hole. I mean, even this situation that we're dealing with right now with COVID-19, we're doing the best we can. We're, we're trying to pray and believe God while staying abreast of all the information. And we're trying to make the right call. And literally, Dustin and I came together to pray this morning. We we're like, I think we're following God, right? He would have told us, right? Like, I mean, we're, we're just trying to make the right call. And so, I, you know, I had this fear, like, maybe I'm going to muck it up. Maybe I'm going to just mess up. And the Lord goes, no, 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 son. Look at, look at Jude 124. I'm able, I'm able to keep you from stumbling. I'm able. It's not about you being able. Come on. This was never about you being able. Right. I'm not saved because I'm able. He goes, that's right. I'm not able to do righteousness because I'm able. He goes, that's right. And I go, wait a minute. You're able to keep me from stumbling and to present me before you with exceeding joy in your glory? Yes. I go, whoo. That's what I needed to know. It's not about my ability, not about working harder, not about trying more. It's not about any of that. It's about leaning into the grace of God, knowing the love of God, getting perfected in love, living by love so his grace can carry me and present me before him faultless in his presence. Amen? Amen, amen. All right, let's stand. There's five kind of rewards. I want one of each. I do. Or multiples of each. It wouldn't be bad to have a change of clothes. Multiple treasures. I just, I want to right now, I want to commend us to live every day with that day in mind. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking for this whole spiritual family, these ones so courageous today to stand in the face of fear. You see our hearts. We want to live for you. We want to love you. We want to serve you. I'm asking for every person that's a part of our spiritual family, God, that you would embolden their hearts and envision their hearts to live for that day, to not simply live day to day, but to live for that day, the day when we see you, when we see your face. I pray, God, help them by humility to access the grace of God, to step into love, to step into grace. Just as we're closing, I just want to pray for for people in the room. Listen, if you're in the room today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. I shared clearly earlier that he shed his blood for you so that you don't have to spend eternity apart from him. Maybe you're away from God. Maybe your heart's not right with God. Do you not see the shaking happening in the earth right now? This is the moment to submit yourself entirely to the Lordship of Jesus for your life. If you'd say to me, I don't know Jesus, but I want to, I want to give my life to him. Maybe for the first time, or if you'd say to me, I've been away from the Lord, but I want to come back to him. I want to submit my whole life to him, make him the Lord of my life. I want to pray for you right now. If that's you and you're in this room, I want you to shoot your hand up in the air right now. Anyone say, that's me. I need to give my life to Jesus. I'm looking. I see your hand. Anyone else say, that's me. Be bold. If you need Jesus right now, I see your hand in the back. Just leave it up. I see your hand. That's four. Are there others that say, I need to give my life to Jesus right now? I want to submit myself to him entirely. Maybe you'd say, I've been away from the Lord. I want to come back to him. I want to come back to him right now. I've been backslidden. I've been lukewarm. He says, if you are lukewarm, he goes, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Have you been lukewarm? Do you need to come back to Jesus? Is that you? I want you to raise your hand. Say, I need him. I'm going to come to him. I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hands. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. There's about 10, 12. If you need Jesus this morning, don't leave here without giving your life to him. This is a moment. This is a little bit of a shaking. We have not seen anything that's coming yet. This thing is going to get so much more intense. If you need Jesus, this is the moment. I want to pray a prayer with you. I'm going to ask us all to pray together. If you raised your hand, I specifically am asking you to pray this prayer out of your mouth, loud enough so you can hear yourself. Make this a commitment of your life to him. Not just something you do with your mind, but a heart commitment to Jesus. He promises he will save you. He will change you. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. I want everyone in the room to say this with me. Say, Lord Jesus. Loud enough so you can hear yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you right now and I turn away from sin and I turn towards you. Jesus Christ, be the Lord of my life. I believe you died for me. You shed your blood for me. You you were three days in the grave and you were risen again for my justification, for my salvation. I submit myself to you entirely and fully. I will serve you all the days of my life.
In Jesus' name, everybody that agree with that said a big amen. Man, let's give the Lord a hand clap. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. If you're new, I want to encourage you. We have an information area there in the front on your way out. You can connect with somebody. They'll show you some next steps you can take in your walk with Jesus. Otherwise, God bless you. We love you. Be safe. Wash your hands. Hallelujah. You're dismissed.